This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. There have been numerous times in history where leaders have had to go well above and beyond the call of duty. We even see that to a degree today with what our country has had to go through with various natural disasters. But we have also seen a president with very low approval rating and a Congress that really nobody likes from either side of the aisle as well. From a historical perspective, Harvard Business School professor Nancy Kane looks at some of the leaders who have brought themselves and or the country through turbulent times. They include Abraham Lincoln, but also Rachel Carson, whose work to spread the word about the dangers of widespread pesticide abuse is very important. Kane is the author of the book Forged in Crisis, and she joins us right now on our show. Nancy, great to have you with us today. Great to be with you, Dan. Thank you. I'd be interested. I am a history buff myself, but in terms of doing an idea specifically on this topic, where did the genesis of the idea come from? Well, ironically, the idea came, or the the, the germs of the book came from finding myself in a series of completely unexpected crises, both personal and professional. My father died. My husband walked out about three months later after 15 years of marriage. I got cancer with no risk factors. A couple of years passed, I got cancer again, you know, befuddling all the doctors. And I was beset by high waves and, you know, huge wind, big, strong winds. And I realized, I'm a historian by training, I, I grabbed for Lincoln, books of Lincoln's writings. And I started at the back of his life, the end of the Civil War, and I read, read backward. And with each of his letters and speeches and you know, columns he wrote for newspapers, I kept thinking to myself, Nancy, you think you have crises? Lincoln had much more to deal with, both in terms of being president and deal with all (laughs) kinds of personal losses he and his wife had suffered. And that was the genesis. How do we navigate through crisis? How do leaders, because this was so clear in Lincoln's case, how do leaders not only navigate and lead their followers through crisis, but how do they themselves become better, stronger, more more embracing of a worthy purpose, mm-hmm. more, with more access to their muscles of moral courage. I just thought that was such a compelling question, and that was really the beginnings of the book. And then I found these other four fascinating people, and their jaw-dropping, gripping stories, and I was off to the races. Well, and, and as you mentioned with Lincoln, and obviously all of the things that he went through professionally and personally, I mean, that story to a degree is, is, is well-known, maybe not to everybody, but as you mentioned, with the other people that you put in there, uh, Frederick Douglass, to a degree, I think people understand here in the United States, but some of the other people, Ernest Shackleton, Rachel Carson, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, th- these are names that are not exactly uh, ones that come to the tips of tongues of a lot of people. Absolutely not. And that was part of the reason to include these stories. I stumbled on. I stumbled on all three of them. And I didn't know much about Douglas, even though I'm a historian. I was trained as a European historian, so I didn't know a huge amount about him. And I think a lot of Americans don't know the astounding challenges he overcame, right, as a, a slave who escaped to the North to get his freedom, and then as a, as a you know, tireless activist to abolish slavery. But the other three, Ernest Shackleton, this explorer who, you know, just finds himself once his boat goes through the ice off the coast of Antarctica in 1915, yeah. stranded with lifeboats and some canned goods, and no way, and no means of communication, and somehow he's got to get his 27-man team home alive. And then Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor, a German Lutheran pastor, yeah. 
who was active in the resistance to Hitler throughout the 1930s and then in the 1940s becomes a double agent working within the Nazi government to try and kill Hitler and overthrow the Third Reich. And then Rachel Carson, this very quiet, retiring scientist and writer who literally rocks the world and almost single-handedly launches the environmental movement when she publishes Silent Spring in 1962. I just thought, these stories are amazing. They're like... They're like the best movies we've ever seen. I got to tell them. Well, let me start with Bonhoeffer for a second because I, I'm uh, I'm a little bit of a World War II history buff uh, myself, and this was a story I, I had heard of Mr. Bonhoeffer, but I didn't really understand the the depths of of his anger towards uh, Adolf Hitler and obviously the Nazi movement back in the 30s, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, but his stories you alluded to as basically. A double agent as a pastor is something that, you know, a Hollywood movie script writer would love. I, I could not agree more. And you, it's, you know, it's like you can't you can't make this stuff up. It's so interesting. So here's a man who's a pacifist, right, who's, who's a deeply committed Christian who has spent years of his young adult life lecturing on Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, right? Yeah. Love, love one's brother. And then he comes as the, as like, as the noose of Nazi evil titans. And he has family members who are working inside the government, again, as, 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 as resistors. And so he knows the inside story of what the Nazi government is doing, including the beginnings of what we call today the Holocaust. And he is more and more frustrated by his inability to do something, simple, not simply, but through, through church avenues, through, through, through uh, alternative churches that he and others have helped found right. to resist the Nazi government. And he, he eventually has to come to terms with, a, with this terrible moral dilemma, which is we may have to kill Hitler in order to stop a much greater evil, and, yeah. and yet we cannot escape right, the moral consequences of what we're doing. And he grapples with that and ultimately decides to cross that line and do that. But, so the story is fascinating inside and out in terms of what he experienced. Wasn't one of his problems also the fact that if, if you go back and, and look at that period of time, is the fact that the, the Nazis and Adolf Hitler really didn't respect the church that much to begin with? Not at all, right? They didn't respect the church. They had no patience for for the true teachings of Christianity, either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. Right. Um, and, and, and for Judaism, absolutely no respect for the, you know, the, the nobler messages of a lot of great religions. And so they were doing everything they could to manage, control the church and churches toward messages that supported their power, that supported Nazi teachings. And so again, here's someone who everywhere he turns right. Right, is stymied by uh, an authoritarian regime bent on war and bent on making war on its own citizens, anyone they considered enemies of the state. Right. And some of the really interesting and gripping parts of the chapter are the Gestapo trying to catch <laughs> Bonhoeffer, yeah. trying to trap Bonhoeffer. Well, and, and the fact that, unfortunately, as you mentioned, he was assassinated. Uh, and, and at that period of time, that was that was the only option the Nazis considered. I mean, if you were considered to be anything anti to, you know, to their establishment, they were just they were willing to get rid of you and, and not even right. think twice. Absolutely. And even and Bonhoeffer was from a very well connected family in Berlin, a storied, you know, family with a great deal of power. They were not supporters of the Nazi regime, but they are they are historically very important people. 
and it, you know it speaks to their determination to literally eliminate suspected enemies that they that they uh, murdered Bonhoeffer. And ironically, again, two weeks, April 1945 is when he is he is killed by the by, by the German state by the Nazis. And ironically, two weeks later, the place where he is is murdered is liberated by Allied forces advancing yeah. against Germany. So, but for a couple of weeks. This brave, serious, very courageous man would have lived. But it did. If did I read it correctly that that he spent some time in the United States as well? Well, yes, he did. He spent two. He spent a critical year in New York, teaching and lecturing and learning at the Union Theological Seminary, still there in New York. Right. And then he was in. New, he was back in New York at the Union Theological Seminary again in 1939. His friends in Germany had spirited him off for a year away before he was either called up for conscription, because the Nazis were making war in 1939, or he was arrested by the Gestapo. They're like, let's get Dietrich safe. He goes to New York. He's there for two weeks. This is July 1939. And he realizes, I cannot be here in good conscience. I have to go back and join my brethren in the struggle to overthrow Nazi Germany. And so he gets on a ship, one of the last ships, Right to get to, to sail for Germany from America before war breaks out mm-hmm. a month before World War World War Two begins. We are joined by Nancy Kane, who is the author of the book Forged in Crisis: The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. Your comments are welcome at eight four four Wharton eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at Biz Radio one eleven B I Z. Radio 111, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. Uh, Frederick Douglass, you mentioned that that there are elements of, of Douglass's life and his story that a lot of people don't really know or understand. Take us into that for a second. Well, let me give you one example that, it's just still, still, I, that stays with me. I use it in my own life to kind of steal my own muscles of courage. And that is a moment when he's a slave, he's a, he's a young, he's a teenager, but he's a strong very intelligent, very resourceful slave who can't stand being a slave. And mm. his owner sends him off to a gentleman named, a man named Edward Covey, who is known as a slave breaker. These were people very common in the South during slave, slaveholding times, when, uh, who, 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 whose job it was to literally intimidate, mostly by physical violence, but also by emotional abuse, intimidate slaves into more docility, into more subservience. And, and owners often sent recalcitrant, particularly men, black men, to these people. So he's with the slave breaker, Edward Covey, one day, and, he decided, and he's scared. Covey's been beating him. Covey, he had run away and, 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 and his own, to his owner to seek some kind of redress. His owner had sent him back to Covey. He's worried that Covey's going to attack him. And Covey comes at him one Monday morning, one hot summer Monday morning. And Douglas decides in that moment to step into the fear and to, and to, and to, to, to really, really confront Covey. And they have this huge physical fight. It goes on for two hours. They're wrestling. They don't have weapons. And Covey calls other slaves to come help him, and the black, black man and woman, he calls, refuse to get involved, and they watch. And for two hours, these men wrestle, and in the end, it's a draw. Neither of them, if you will, brings the other to the ground decisively. But a draw for Frederick Douglass is a victory, and Covey relents and, and never, ever touches Frederick Douglass, this young man, again. 
And mm. Douglas says, he's narrating this in his first autobiography, Narrative of a Slave, and he says, you have seen how a man is made a slave. Now you see how a slave was made a man. And in that moment, Douglas writes, he recovers his self-confidence, he recovers his sense of identity, he you know, rips through, you know, t- cuts through the years of varnish, of depression and, and loss of agency that slavery, and particularly this man, had imposed on him, and he is made, he has access to his stronger self. And that is such a powerful lesson for all of us, you know, when we face some of our worst fears and take the first small step yeah. into that fear to discover our truer, braver, stronger self. It's an amazing story, and there are many more like it in his life's journey. Well, I, I just think about the uh, the fact that he was able to, you know, to get away from slavery and, and the path that he took uh, to be able to eventually get to New York City. Uh, I mean, you think about the, 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 the travails that you have to go through in doing that, and, and that kind of crystallizes you as— uh, your your persona as well, and then obviously, you know, a lot of people consider him to be one of the the most important African Americans of the 19th century. Oh, I think he was, and I think he's one of the most important leaders in American history. And yeah. you know, I you know, the book makes the point that that these two leaders of the five, the five stories, right? Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass actually ended up working for a common purpose. Sure. Slavery, oh yeah, right? absolutely. And they they came to know each other and they came to respect each other because they met several times during the Civil War. And and it's it's so fascinating, right, to realize and the book makes this point, the I make this point, it's not always made when we talk about Lincoln as the great emancipator, is that Lincoln could never have done what he do, did. It should be emancipation proclamation and then prosecute the rest of the war as a war to end slavery as well as save the Union without all the work on the ground that Frederick Douglass did as a spokesperson, an activist, you know, a, a man who was changing political momentum on the part of lots and lots of northern whites towards slavery, working with ordinary citizens, working with politicians, working with journalists. So you can't get to the end result of the Civil War and the restoration of America with, to its original promise without slavery if you don't have both Frederick Douglass and right. Abraham Lincoln. So this man made a huge, important, positive difference. I want to switch to Ernest Shackleton for a second, because you alluded to it at the top. Uh, here's a polar explorer. Uh, ship goes down. Uh, it, it's him and 25, 27 crew members that are trying to survive in, in one of the coldest spots in the world with, with basically canned food and, and a couple of boats. And I, I, I mean, we've hear we've heard some versions of these types of stories throughout history in the United States. But I think when you talk about that core, you know, basic thing that you have to overcome, that, that you, if you can do that, that's leadership in, in really in its basic form. That that's exactly right, Dan. That's exactly right and spot on. And that's why that's why it's at the top of the book, right? That it's there for two reasons. One, this is such a stark example of what you just said. If you can, against all odds, right, when the stakes could not be higher, they are life or death, right? Accomplish the nearly impossible or make yeah. the impossible possible, as he did, right? Against all these, oh my God, you read this story. And you keep turning the page and you go, it can't keep getting worse. This can't be this hard. Right. This, he can't be right. facing this roadblock. And he keeps coming through them. And he somehow keeps that kind of resilience, that kind of commitment to mission, that kind of I will never give up dedication going. And you, you, you read this and you think, God, 
Shackleton can teach us a lot about what we are capable of right. if we really access our core muscles of strength and, and courage. And that's the reason I put it at the top of the book. And the second reason I put it there is because we most of us don't know this story and because it's yeah. so damn gripping. <laughs> yeah. It's just such a page turner. Well, and, and also the fact that if if you look back, I mean, that was a period of time where seemingly you had more explorers than, than at almost any time in the history of the world. And they wanted to go to the North Pole, to the South Pole. They, I mean, they those were the challenges at that point going up Everest. You know, these were the challenges of that, you know, early part of the 20th century. They absolutely were, and you know, it's often called the great age of exploration. And and you know, it's so interesting to think that these were the people that were famous. It wasn't, you know, these were not sports heroes. Right. They were not. They were not celebrities in our sense of that word. They were not, you know, fortunes. 40 billionaires under 40, they they were explorers, and they were patriotically driven and, you know, driven by fame and driven by conquering the unknown. And, you know, in some real sense, Shackleton fails along all those litmus tests because he doesn't get to the South Pole first. Yeah. He doesn't accomplish the mission he sets out to in 1914 to walk across the Antarctic continent. And yet, in many, many ways, he succeeds beyond measure, right, for all time in the story that all kinds of folks, you know, young and old, from all kinds of walks of life, can draw some inspiration and hope and good lessons from. So I, I just think he's a man, he's a person in the story for our time. Give us more of the story of Rachel Carson for those people that really don't don't know it. Uh, and, and for those people listening to us, they may remember the name uh, at, at when they were growing up. Uh, I didn't really know the story of Rachel Carson much at all, so it was great to be able to, you know, to 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 delve in and understand it a little bit more. Well, yes, I'm, and she's the last person in the book, and the only woman. And as much as I fell in love with every one of these people, and still love them dearly, I have a very special place in my heart for her. Okay, she was a born a poor uh, born to poor parents, became. Went to college in the in the 1920s when women most women didn't go to college most women didn't complete college if they did they certainly weren't biologists right. as she was they didn't seek a living in science as she did so she's a pathbreaker in lots and lots of ways she quickly becomes her only the only breadwinner for her birth family literally financially supporting and caretaking for her father her mother her brother her sister her nieces and she, at the same time she's getting a master's in in zoology at Johns Hopkins and beginning a career that will ultimately marry this incredible poetic grace and beauty she has with language to her deep commitment to scientific rigor and truth in articles and books that make the natural world completely accessible to people without amazingly dumbing down the science and she pursues the, you know, marries these two gifts and nurtures them and learns all these things about herself while, again, going home at night and, you know, putting their nieces to bed and making dinner and cleaning up and putting laundry in, like lots of women today. And then in the, 19, in the mid-1950s, she, or early 1950s, she writes a best-selling book that I remember, I didn't read, but my mother read, called The Sea Around Us. Okay. And it's a smash bestseller about the majesty and importance and natural you know, environmental diaspora of the ocean, in a way, again, that every lay reader can understand. And that that's a bestseller, and it gives her the freedom to leave her job at the Fish and Wildlife Service, where she's been doing all kinds of things for many years, mostly editorial content um, uh, tasks and responsibilities. And, and she searches around for her next project, and she bumps into, like a kid the hot stove, 
the issue of pesticide use, DDT, yeah. Heptacor, these pesticides that after World War II are being used in huge, largely untested ways by farmers, big, com- big com- chemical companies, and, and sold for household use as well. And the more she learns, as she kind of puts on her detective cap, the more anxious she gets, the more concerned she gets about the, posit- the possible effects of this. A bit like lots of things we've discovered about chemicals sure. and, and environmental and environmental dangers in, in our own lifetime. And she starts to piece together a very complicated, very serious, very high-stakes story about the dangers of these. Very careful. I mean, doing her homework painstakingly. It takes her years to do this. She's double, triple, quadruple-checking everything. Um, and as people get wind of the story, and she's very careful to you know, not release anything before it's time, but as people get wind of it, there are threats against her, threats against her, her family, right? Because Dow Chemical and the USDA and lots of places don't want this story out there. Sure, yeah. And, she, and, it, and, she, and yet she's determined. She said, I could never look myself in the face if I kept silent on this. And so she has stumbled into her life's work. And she's determined, mm. as she says over and over, to set it on a firm foundation, do her homework well. At the same time, in the middle of her research and the beginnings of her writing, she is diagnosed with aggressive metastasizing cancer. Mm. And so the, the bulk of the chapter, the second half of the chapter, is the story of her race against the clock yeah. and her commitment yeah. to, to do this work right, to get it out there, and to get it out there in a way that will call citizens to action on behalf of the Earth, not in an impractical and romantic way, in a pragmatic and morally responsible way. Yeah. It says, Earth sustains us, we must sustain Earth, and we must do it in a way that enables modern life. And it's an astoundingly, it's an astounding book. I've read it, I didn't, I read it as an adult, but it is a book that still sells many copies, and it's, yeah. it's a page-turner, because she writes so well, and she makes it so easy for us to understand, and she's so careful. And so the story is how she battles cancer and all the different, the different terrible physical ailments and emotional difficulties that come with that, while she gets the book out, and while the book causes... And by the way, she tells no one she has cancer, because she doesn't want any of the vested interests that want these chemicals used in widespread use. Nancy, I, on- I, I hate to do this. I have to end this right now, because oh, we're at I'm the sorry. top of the hour. I apologize. It's been great oh, my, talking no, to you. No, no problem. It's an amazing story about the power of quiet, shy leaders to change the world. Thanks, Nancy. All the best. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.